Hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the Live It Well podcast. We are your hosts, Chris and Jenny Gravy. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. We are so glad that you're here with us. Each week, we invite authors, mentors, friends of ours who have an inspiring message, who are living their life well. And so our goal is to learn and grow, and we want to invite you to do the exact same thing with us. So hope you're ready. Let's dive right in. So if you've listened to the podcast for a while, you may have heard us share from time to time how God has really had us on this journey over the last few years of moving from just a church on Sunday, small group on Monday, daily quiet time throughout the week kind of a lifestyle to really trying to learn and center our lives around the ways of Jesus or the spiritual disciplines. And the goal with that, of course, is to become more like Jesus. I know many of you have been on a similar journey as well, and it's been great to hear what God is up to in your lives. It's crazy to say that I've been a Christian for most of my 38 years of life, and I'm just now learning about incredible things like the prayer of examine and how to practice Sabbath. And the one that's probably changed me the most personally has been the practice of slowing down. Yeah, and along this journey, one of the greatest resources that has helped us and our family has been from this amazing man, Pastor John Mark Comer and his church and what they're doing in Bridgetown in Portland, Oregon. When we had the opportunity to visit and witness firsthand what God's doing in that church, it was just a special and refreshing time for us. So today we've invited our friend John Mark to come and share about their journey of leading their church into this practicing the way of Jesus concept and the idea of slowing down. Or as Dallas Willard puts it, ruthlessly eliminating hurry from your life. Um, I know that quote is everywhere right now. And John Mark has just released his fourth book with this title, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. John Mark shares his journey with us today of going from successful megachurch pastor to hitting a wall of burnout and hurry sickness to coming out on the other side still loving and serving Jesus, but now, thankfully, from a much healthier place emotionally and spiritually. So I remember I had this like existential crisis when I realized, okay, I'm not changing. I'm not becoming more like Jesus. And the problem was not that I did not want to change. I really did. And the problem was not that I was not trying to change. I was trying really hard. It was that I did not know how to change. So during our conversation today, we talk with John Mark about what it looks like to move from just a church on Sunday morning lifestyle to truly centering our lives around the rhythms of Jesus in order to become more like Him. John Mark unpacks the dangers of living a hurried life, just how much it actually steals from us, and the practical steps to move towards a slower, more soulful way of living. So take a deep breath, let your heart slow down, and listen in. All right, well, John Mark, thank you so much for coming. We can't tell you how much your ministry, your work, and what you've done has impacted our life as former pastors officially, I guess, with, on a business card, but now getting to do the pastoral thing outside in the business world and life. Right. The example that you've set for us and impacted our life has really meant a lot. So thank you so much for being here today. Oh, that's really gracious of you guys. And it's an honor and a joy. Awesome. All right. Well, you have written this brand new, powerful book. I mean, you've written books, but this one I think is really speaking to our time and where we're at. And it's The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. That's and it. I cannot wait to dive into this book yes. and the context of it. But first, we have to kind of talk about your journey. You know, the last few years, you've kind of gone from the successful mega church pastor guy 
hitting this wall of hurry sickness, burnout, and coming to the other side, still loving and actually serving Jesus, which is pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. So good job there. Would you share that story with us? Yeah, well, I mean, successful only works if you have a, a goofy metric system to say I'm successful. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 a tragically common trope. You know, my story is not that crazy. So yeah, planted a church. Um, gosh, it's been 16 years ago now, wow. and it grew really fast. And um, kind of it became a mega church very quickly. And, you know, you guys have a story and background in that. And you know all the joy and excitement and adrenaline that comes with that and sense of seeing God at work and so many stories of, you know, God at work. But then also, man, like the, the dark underbelly of the beast, you know, and the way it, it chews people up and spits them out and is quickly corrupted by American metric systems of success around numbers and budget and fame and that kind of just really stuff that's actually anti the way of Jesus, mm -hmm. not in it, you know. So yeah, definitely got sucked into that. And um, I, there was no like moral failure in the classic sense. I just year over year was becoming more and more exhausted, mm -hmm. unhappy, irritable, angry at the world, unloving, in a hurry, not present. I was frankly losing my soul as the church was very <laughs> successful Crazy. but again by american metrics of right, success right, right. you know yeah. so um you know i talk about mega church there's two ways of using the word mega church one is as a size of church that's over 2000 people and i have i have no beef with that i think there's um plenty of room for all sorts of shapes and sizes of church in the ecosystem of the church in a city and i think it's actually they play a necessary role and um in the life of this, the church at large but then there's mega church as like a way of doing church as a mindset or a mentality and that i'm still i'm, I'm over through the angry pretentious angst about it but i'm just not a fan of you know and i would basically define it as you know, we talk about the metrics for success and the kind of American mega are, you know, budgets, butts, buildings, and buzz. You know, like, <laughs> what's your building scenario? How many people are there? How much money are they giving? And is there buzz? Like, is there retweet and people into it? And are you growing and notoriety? And mm -hmm. man, I'm just not remotely interested in giving my life to that. And um, I really think that Jesus would have no issue with large churches, but I think he would have I think you'd have some serious issues with churches that were basically around Sunday and nothing else around personality more than around community and around a kind of consumer orientation toward how church is done. And so I, I came up in that world and that's what I wanted. And then I got it. And then I thought, oh, wow, where is Jesus in this? You know, and I, I began to have this experience. And this is, I think, the much deeper story that is, you know, and I really am not cynical. I'm not angry. I'm not. I hope I'm not arrogant. I went through all of that process and just, you know, I was as much a part of the problem as anything, anybody else. But I think really the deeper story for me was I began to experience, you know, I've been following Jesus as long as I can remember. Grew up, my father's a pastor, grew up in the church, had a great experience with it. And through high school, college, even my 20s or early 20s at least, I felt like I was on this growth curve. If the end goal is, you know, to become more with Jesus and like Jesus and to begin to do the kinds of things that he would do if he were you. If that's the end goal of kind of apprenticeship to Jesus or the spiritual journey, I felt like I was on this growth curve. And year over year, I felt more with Jesus, more like Jesus, more on about his stuff. But then about, I don't know, 25-ish for me, I just like hit this plateau. The moment 
that my apprenticeship to Jesus began to like really hit on the deep stuff of my soul, personality stuff. I think of like Enneagram theory and all the rage, like the, the habits of sin in the language of my tradition that were ingrained in literally my neurobiology through generational sin passed down from like grandfathers and grandmothers, you know, mm. man, at that moment, it's like the kind of way that I had been handed to follow Jesus was ineffective at best. You know, the, the once began to hit up against cultural norms and metrics for success outside and inside the church. It was just all of a sudden I got stuck and I hit this plateau. And if anything, year over year, at best, I felt stuck. At worst, I felt like I was growing less loving, less present, more in a hurry, stressed out, anxious, overwhelmed, as now we began to pile on people and staff and you know, children now are a part of the mix and a mortgage and just the responsibility of adult life, grown up stuff, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I felt, okay, so I remember I had this like existential crisis when I realized, okay, I'm not changing. I'm not becoming more like Jesus. Mm -hmm. And the problem was not that I did not want to change. I really did. And the problem was not that I was not trying to change. I was trying really hard. It was that I did not know how to change. And then it hit me like, oh, dang it. My whole church is full of people like me, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Which is like in hindsight is so foolish that that was a, a novice, you know, or a virgin idea to me, you know, because arrows line as the leaders go, so goes the church. But um, I, I somehow I thought like, well, what if I sacrifice my soul so the rest of my church can do really well, which in hindsight, I'm like, what was I thinking? You know, like our, your church will mirror and mimic the leadership of that church their emotional health and maturity, their transformation to love or lack of transformation for better or for worse. Right. You know, a church will rarely rise above the level of maturity of its highest level of leaders. Rarely. It's very rare. So um, I don't know what I was thinking. But and then I began to realize, oh, dang it, my church is full of people like me who were, were growing for a while. But then again, the same thing. Once they hit the like assumptions of their culture, right, left, whatever economic stratum they come from once they hit the personality stuff once they hit a father wound a mother wound an addiction a compulsion it's like that formula of kind of go to church on sunday read the bible and tithe or whatever all of which are practices that i are still in my rule of life and i have a high value for but that alone it just was ineffective you know and so we we're just all kind of again banging our head against the wall it's not that we didn't want to change we did it's not we weren't trying to change we were it's that we did not know how so I think that brought me in my early 30s to basically a, a, an early midlife crisis, just a decade or two before the norm, you know, <laughs> and a big like asking questions about what is church? What, who am I in the role of the church? What am I supposed to do with my life? How do I get unstuck? Because I just had that, you know, that gift and it really was a gift where by, you know, 30 or so I had enough of a church, enough of life under my belt that I could kind of track the trajectory of my character arc out a decade, two, three, four. And I could envision who I was becoming at 50, 60, 70. And that thought exercise was terrifying for me. You know, <laughs> like to, to envision myself at 70 and, and they realize, oh, I see a person who's maybe pastoring a really large church, but like all of the other stuff is a mess. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, okay, if I'm going to get off this train, the time to do it is now as soon as possible you know so that began a massive kind of reorientation of my whole life that brought me onto this kind of you know massive ongoing six seven years and now reading a research project around spiritual formation how do we actually change which has become kind of the core question that i wake up in the morning with every day how do we become more loving how do we change to become more like jesus 
and um, has brought me into a whole new space. And this book is kind of a little bit memoirish in the beginning in that it kind of tells some of that story, but then it's much more around kind of formation and how we actually slow down. I love it. That's incredible. I'm wondering what the conversation was with your wife during that season. What were those first conversations like? Was she surprised? Did she see, kind of see it coming as well? Was she feeling it too? What did that look like? Was she ahead of you going, I've, I've been waiting for you. <laughs> Usually that's what's happening here. Most of the time. You know, gosh, that's a great question. I've not thought about it through that lens. I wish she was here to ask. I think you know, as always, she's always ahead of me. And, you know, she was in a very different stage in a sense. She was, you know, a stay-at-home mom at the time. We had three little kids. And so she was feeling the weight of that. And she, I think, was just on the receiving end of all of my emotional unhealth. You know what I mean? Because the in this strange conspiracy of God and nature, the people that we love the most are the people that we treat the worst. You know, so if you were to follow me around with a hitting camera and look for dirt on my life, the worst, you know, for a week, all of, you know, or probably 99% of the worst moments, the, the, the moments when you would cringe and go, ooh, that's in his life, would all be in ways that I treat my wife and my three children, you know, because we feel safe and we're at home and we come down and we relax and we calm and it's this whole thing. So um, I think she was really feeling the pain of my emotional unhealth and my spiritual deformation, you know? Um, I think it was all we really knew. And it was what had been handed to us. It's what we wanted or we thought we wanted. It was all we really knew. There is a status that comes with a life of speed and hurry and success by the American metrics. And there really is a risk in stepping away from all of that. Or there was a perceived risk. I actually don't think there is. But there's a perceived risk or emotional, like a felt risk, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I think in some ways she was ahead of me in that she's, her personality, she's not nearly as bent toward hurry. But uh, in other ways, I think we were very much on the same kind of path. And it was a real kind of moment of reckoning for us. Nice. I love that. So let's dive into the book, The Practice of Slowing Down, Ruthlessly Eliminating Hurry. And I have to say, you know, we've kind of been on this three-year journey of jumping out of kind of a lifestyle that you described where we go to church on Sunday, we have our life group, and and that's about it. We have our quiet yes. time every day. But it was really you and Bridgetown, someone, I don't know how we got connected there, but that started to introduce us to the spiritual disciplines, really. And mm-hmm. I mean... I've been a Christian my entire life. I mean, entire life. I'm 38, yeah. and I'm just now learning that there's there are these rhythms that I need to be centering my life around in order mm-hmm. to become more like Jesus. And it is. Oh, been, I love how you said that. Oh my gosh, it's been completely yeah. transformational for us. Yeah. Huge, wow. huge season. Um, but I am so excited about this book because one of my very favorite disciplines that we've learned is the practice of slowing down. I mean, I cannot think of a better one for this day, for this time than slowing down. So I'm really excited for you to talk about it. The quote that you start the book with is, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. That's a big statement. That sounds yes. a little extreme at first glance. Mm-hmm. But yep. That was my that. first thought, yes, too. Yes. I think everyone thinks, really? Hurry? Is that the greatest enemy? But unpack that for us and tell us how you found that to be true in your own life. Yeah. Okay. So first off, that's not a quote from me. That's right. a quote from the yes. philosopher Dallas Willard. And it's not actually a quote from a book. It's uh, a quote from a conversation, a phone conversation that he had with John Ortberg. You guys follow Ortberg's work at all? Yes. 
that book that it's from is one of my favorites. Yes, it. he's yes. put it in, yeah, in Soul Keeping, and I think in another one of his books, too. So Orberg's a hero of mine. And, yeah, the short version there is basically, I think it's the late 90s. Ortberg is ironically on staff at Willow Creek Community Church. So at the time, kind of one of the most influential megachurches in the world. And, you know, I think similar to your story and to mine, he's just getting sucked into some of that. And, you know, I don't know how, what exactly his, I don't remember exactly his question or language to Willard, but he calls up Willard out in California and basically says, all right, like, how, what do I need to do? This is something's not right, you know? And this is, I mean, John freaking Ortberg, yeah. you know what I mean? He's already like world famous Bible teacher, best selling author. If you know John, he's just yeah. a lovely soul and just an incredible person. And then he said, there's this long silence on the other end of the line. And then Willard said that. You said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Then, you know, John said, oh my gosh, that's amazing. What else is there? And then he said, there is nothing else. He said, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. So when I first read that, I thought, I mean, first off, it just like, I had this like bizarre, like moment of contact between my soul and God and truth. It was just, you know, you ever that moment? It's like, all of a sudden, like you did, whoa, what did I just what touch? Yeah. You know? But I had the first, the same gut reaction to you, like, hurry's the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. That is, like, A, extreme, and B, like, doesn't, probably not even right, you know? Yeah. And, I mean, again, I live in Portland, Oregon. A new study just came out saying we're the least religious city in all of the United States of America. I mean, you've been here. It's hyper-secular, mm-hmm. hyper, like, progressive, really far left, makes Nashville look like, you know, yeah. fundy, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> Um, super post-Christian, if it ever was Christian. It's always been kind of end of the Oregon Trail outside of the, the central kind of influence of the church in America. So um, I don't know. If you had asked me prior to hearing that, like, what's the greatest challenge to following Jesus or pastoring a church in Portland? I have no idea what I would have said. Donald Trump or politics or right. gender or, you know, incoming quality. Or I don't even know. The phone. I don't even know what I would have said. I doubt Hurry would have even been on my top ten. Right. I doubt it would have been on the list yeah. you know it was right. so in my muscle memory and um but then the longer that i've sat with that statement the more i agree with it and maybe it's not right but i i agree with it i think that hurry is so much of like the issue underneath all of the other issues i think you can link it to secularization to post-christian to the death of the soul to divorce to marriage to breakdown to i mean yeah. to the incapacity of love to attachment theory i mean i think you can link it as the like the subterranean underneath so many of the symptoms of toxicity in our world. And uh, I I do think that hurry, you know, I think Warburg's line was, I can't live in the kingdom of God with a hurried soul. And I really have come to believe, and this was, this is a new idea for me. I'm not new like now it's in me now, but was new at the time that hurry is really incompatible with life in the kingdom of God. It's incompatible, in particular, if you look at the triumvirate and Jesus' teachings of love and joy and peace, I just think hurry is incompatible with all three. Yeah, that is so good. And I I love that. One of the things I've heard John say, too, is that hurry and love are incompatible. Yes. Hurry literally kills love because love takes time. So yeah. can you unpack that a little bit more? What, why is it so dangerous to live a life of hurry? What exactly, specifically, is it robbing from us relationally yes. and individually? Well, I mean, think about what is love. It's, I mean, it's a lot of things. It's to will the good of another at its most base. But love is attention. Mm-hmm. Love is listening. You know, there's been so much great research on that recently that says just the act of listening to someone and them feeling felt, even if you disagree with 90% of what they said, they walk away feeling love. 
Love is attention, it is listening, it is presence, it is care, it is compassion and empathy, it is being with somebody, it is doing things for their good that are practical in nature to will their good. All of that takes time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as in my own experience, all of my worst moments as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a human being are when I'm in a hurry. Mm -hmm. yeah. All of them. When I'm late, when I have too much to do and not enough time to do it, when I'm yeah. stressed out from work, this, life, travel, when I'm late for the airport or whatever the thing is, that's when like, I exude not love, anger, irritation, a right. biting comment, sarcasm, yelling, no time to be present to somebody. I mean, you guys are parents, you have five kids, you know, better than I do. 90% of parenting is dealing with interruptions. You know, my kids, no matter how many times I tell them, they don't like call my assistant and say, can we get some time on the books for next month? You know, they just barge into my office, no matter how many times I tell them this is my work zone and just start talking. And like what I do in those moments, that is the litmus test of whether or not I'm a loving father. Mm. And, you know, so if I'm hurried, I'm not loving. Right. And if I'm loving, I'm not hurried. Yeah, yeah that's so good. Well, I, I know people are listening going, uh-oh. <laughs> I think, I think yeah. maybe he's talking Again, I say that not as judgment. This no, is, right, you're just sharing the real you know, stuff, right? I'm in this with yes. all of you. Right. Oh, my it's God. True right. all of us. Right. So this idea of hurry sickness, you talk about these symptoms, right? So people are listening going, okay, maybe this I'm is me. with yeah. you. Maybe this is me. What are some of the symptoms that you talk about when it comes to hurry sickness? Yeah, so hurry sickness is in my language. That's like actually a technical diagnosis. It was, I think it was coined by the cardiologist. I'm spacing on his name off the top of my head. But the one who back in the 50s became famous for connecting the dots between people that are like hyper type A and live with chronic anger and heart disease and just saying that basically hurried, angry, type A people are way higher risk for heart disease, which now is like, oh, of course, we know that. He was the first doctor to basically figure that out. And he coined this language of hurry sickness, and a lot of work has been done on it since. I read two, Philip Zimbardo and another who had a great little psychological survey of hurry sickness, and they identified three symptoms. So here are the symptoms. You asked the question, and this is them, not me. One, at a stoplight, you angle and change lanes for whichever one has the least amount of cars. Mm. <laughs> so like there's four cars in one lane, two in the other, beep, you, you swoop over. Two, at a grocery store, you do the same thing, but with lines, like you angle for the shortest line and slip into that. And three, you multitask to the point that you occasionally forget one of the tasks. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I don't want to play armchair psychologist, but I'm pretty sure every single person I know mm -hmm. has heard sickness. Yes. Yeah. And yes. I, I just love that they call it a sickness, that they call it a disease. And it, it is like this disease that I think has, has infected Western culture. And it's a Western thing. I mean, when I talk to my African friends or it is not, there's just not a thing they're dealing with. Yeah. And it is a, an acute Western secular phenomenon that um, I think is really like a disease wreaking havoc in our soul and our society. That's so true. I, I, I think 
you probably resonated with all those symptoms. Yeah, maybe it's not more me. <laughs> For sure, me. <laughs> no. Oh man, yeah. My two-year-old started saying "Go, dude," and I realized she learned it from me in the at car. This, in the car at the stoplight. Oh no! <laughs> oh, I get it. Like go, go, go dude. dude. <laughs> Well, hopefully, hopefully your two-year-old's not learning any unique finger placements from no, your time. Yeah, yeah, not yet. She grew up Baptist, so she never learned those. She really. grew up. She doesn't call anybody number one yeah, in the car. Not. For sure. Yeah. Okay, so we're all resonating with you. We're all, yes, that's me. I have hairy sickness. What do we do? What are the yes. top practices that you found to fight hurry sickness? Yeah, well, again, okay, so I come at this, obviously, as a follower and practitioner of the way of Jesus. And so my answer is kind of the practices of Jesus or what are in traditionally called kind of the spiritual disciplines, which you mentioned earlier. And, you know, um, it's interesting. Richard Foster, who kind of really brought back to consciousness in the Western Protestant church, this idea of spiritual disciplines or practice in his 1978, I think, book, Celebration of Discipline, um, he categorized them. And I think this is him actually working with Willard into like different categories. One was a category of engagement and then other disciplines were categories of abstinence or withdrawal. So a discipline or a practice of engagement would be thing like Bible study or church where you go and you do this thing and you engage with your mind and your body, God and his spirit and his truth, they're beautiful. But then there are other practices or disciplines that he called disciplines of abstinence, meaning you abstain or you withdraw for something. So fasting is the ultimate example of this. You abstain from food, silence and solitude. You abstain from noise and other people, you know. Sabbath, you abstain from work. And I think that as a general rule, like just Protestants and evangelicals in particular need a far more holistic, broad, expansive, and robust view of the spiritual disciplines as a whole and practices. And there's some that we were handed that I was really well trained in, like, you know, Bible reading and intercessory prayer and church on Sunday and tithing, beautiful things that are all still in my muscle memory and my rule of life. But then there are others that were like not even on my radar, like Sabbath, fasting, the prayer of examine, confession, you know, like really key stuff that wasn't even, it just wasn't in our, in our emphasis or even on our, on our radar. So um, I think that as the world speeds up 12 years now into the smartphone and the digital age and Wi-Fi, and now we have things like urbanization and transportation and mobility and all the stuff, I think that the disciplines of abstinence are more important now than they've ever been, especially since the cultural architecture is now actually against them, not for them. So if you rewind half a century, like you have a cultural architecture for things like Sabbath. Even if you're an atheist, on Sunday, nothing is open. And all of your neighbors pretty much go to church. The ones that aren't even Christian, they just go to like a mainstream, you know, Protestant church where they talk about love is God or whatever. <laughs> but still people go to church, you know? Yeah. And so the cultural architecture was such that basically Sunday you would either go to church or if you were really secular, stay home. And then you'd what, nap, go to the ballpark, you know, like go to the park and play baseball with your kids or what, like the cultural architecture was such that it created space for a day of rest. Um, the cultural architecture of your morning, you maybe had a newspaper when you woke up. There was nothing else, you know, there was no phone, there's no email, there's no text messages, there's no Wi-Fi, there was no TV. It was just, you woke up and there was a paper on the front door and you'd sit and drink coffee and read it. So the idea of a quiet time, you know what I mean, was just, it was kind of built in, again, to the cultural architecture. So now, not only is all that stuff gone, but everything has actually 
the, the cultural tide is all like literally will sweep you away in the opposite direction. So I think that we have to be pretty ruthless in our practice of spiritual disciplines of abstinence. And I name four in the book, silence and solitude, Sabbath, simplicity, and slowing. All of them are disciplines of abstinence that I think are especially key that we have, you know, 2000 plus years or really longer than that. If you tap into the Jewish tradition and the Hebrew Bible, uh, best practices around and wisdom and thinking and psychology and biblical theology around all of this stuff that I think we just get to tap into and just, you know, get the gold out of the mind, so to speak. And I think we have to recapture this stuff. Yeah, it's so good. Oh, man, it's so true. And I, and I hope I know this is helping everybody who's listening. And, and I'm thinking about it just obviously coming from the context of the corporate environment where we came from, from a church perspective. What is your thought process on this? And maybe even those practices, what is something that we as the American church as a whole need to really start looking at? I mean, I know all four of those are real, but where could we start? Somebody's listening is like, okay, I'm leading a church or I'm on staff at a church. I'm leading this ministry. What yeah. are some things we can do within the American church to start embracing this idea of slowing down and not being hurried? Oh, I love it. Um, I think the two biggest things we can do, one is pretty drastic, and the other, you can start really small and incremental. The first one that's more drastic is a, a recapturing of the practice of Sabbath. So Sabbath is literally not on the radar still of most people. So I grew up in a church tradition that had a high value for the Lord's Day, meaning Sunday was church day. And it wasn't day to like, what, we wouldn't watch movies on Saturday night, like really good theology and practice of Sunday is the Lord's Day. But then after that, it was just like you kind of go home and run errands and do your stuff and, you know, do laundry and get ahead and work for the week or whatever. And it wasn't a day of rest, if anything, but because I grew up in mega church culture, it was like one of the most exhausting days of the year. You're serving and you're volunteering and you're leading this thing. And you're going to church and then you're at Bible study. And by the end of Sunday, you're just ready to die. You're so exhausted, <laughs> you know, yes. worshiping Jesus. And so um, I think that we need to bring back a biblical theology of Sabbath which has been lost in the Protestant tradition. And I think churches like mine, this has been really um, hard actually and telling for us, we need to make some hard decisions about what we do and don't do on Sundays as a church, you know, because we were quickly real, I Sabbath Friday night to Saturday evening. And part of that is because, you know, we have three gatherings on a Sunday in two locations and they go into night. And so Sunday for me is just a marathon work day. And I know it's not that for all of our church. So our elders and staff and leaders, Sabbath, Friday night through Saturday. But um, I realized, man, we're doing a lot on Sundays. And for most people in our church, Sunday is by far the best day to practice Sabbath. So if I stack on this thing and a Sunday afternoon thing and this thing, and what am I doing to people's experience? Am I, am I curating as a pastor a day of Sabbath, which I define as the four movements of stopping, resting, delighting, and worshiping? Am I curating a day where the inertia of our church, you know, leads you to stop, rest, delight, and worship? Or am I curating something else, you know? Hurry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> stress and all of that and i'm not anti-church i'm not saying like don't sure. go to church anymore just stay home and have brunch and you know <laughs> you know love god on the golf course as i'm so not in right. that drive right. yeah so I, I have very high value for uh worship and if you can tie your sabbath practice to your sunday church practice i think that's ideal and beautiful and wonderful um, but I think that's the bigger one. The, the, the tricky thing about Sabbath is it's a high bar of entry, you know, 24 hours, a seventh of your life. And again, you can start with less of it. 
Um, you can start with an hour or two on Saturday morning, you know, but or a half day. But there is something at a psychosomatic level that all sorts of scientific research has been done on about the 24-hour time period that just you can't life hack. So you can't you can't do an actual Sabbath in three hours. Um, <laughs> you can have like little Sabbath moments and Sabbath-ish. Like our church has this running joke. People talk about Sabbath-ish. They're like. <laughs> I don't have a Sabbath, but I have like a Sabbath-ish. Oh. You know, like, I go to church and then I like have lunch with my friends and then I do laundry and then I do, you know what I mean? It's like Sabbath-ish. It's like, and then I watch, you know, four episodes of The Crown. It's Sabbath-ish, you know? And so I think, a lot, which, hey, I'm like, that's great. You're moving to Sabbath-ish is better than nothing at all. And um, so that's wonderful. But to get the full, I mean, for me, the best time of my Sabbath is the last four hours, hands down. Because something has happened in my, in my body, my neurobiology, and my soul, and my family, and our relationships. Mm-hmm. We've gone on this journey, often through some unpleasant emotions, and we've come back around. And so if you don't actually go all the way through, you're missing the best part, you know? Mm-hmm. So Sabbath is wonderful, but again, high bar of entry. It is by definition a 24-hour time period of no work and instead stopping resting, delighting, and worshiping. What's a much smaller bar entry, the second thing that I think is massive is we need to talk way more about the phone than we are. Uh, and we need to view yeah. the phone as just a much, as much of a threat as the new atheists or you know some hardcore Darwinian view of reality or some hetero-orthodox reading of sexuality or whatever. We need to view the phone as just as key, important, and dangerous to our soul as any of the kind of big secular, you know, four horsemen of the apocalypse kind of thing. And we need to help people, I think, recapture the morning quiet time, which I'm guessing you guys grew up with that in your muscle memory, in your tradition. I did. I'm so grateful for it. I have realized the hard way that if the church mostly full of millennials, that is gone. Mm. I mean, it's gone. It's like maybe listen to you version on my morning commute to work. And that's it. It's gone. Yeah. You know? And so I think the simplest, easiest, anybody can do it, because you can do it in 10 minutes, is a, longer is better, but 10 or 15 minutes is better than nothing, is just recapturing, um, beginning your day ideally, or at some point in your day, a moment of quiet with God. Yeah. You read a psalm, and you, and you pray, and by prayer I don't mean like you just go through your list of 10 things and, and intercede, maybe that's part of it, but just resting in God coming aware of him, listening to his voice in your mind and your heart, taking stock of your body, bringing your soul before God, your sadness, your joy, your gratitude, just just being in God's presence. And what Teresa called just silent love, which is my favorite kind of prayer, which doesn't look a lot like prayer. It looks more like just me drinking coffee on the couch early in the morning before the kids are awake. But it's prayer. It's just silent love, heart to heart, resting in God's love for me and and gratefully giving what I have back, you know? And that is, I mean, I just think it's so simple, so doable, and way less common than most people realize. And I think we've got to bring it back. Absolutely. Those are so good. Well, I guess this final question is, when you wrote this, or when somebody picks this book up, what is your hope? What is the hope when they read it, they walk through it, and they set it down? What do you want them to walk away with? Yeah, well, big picture, I hope that they first identify that hurry is not okay, that it is killing their emotional health, their spiritual life, and their capacity both to receive love from God and give love to others. And as a result, I hope that people slow down. But then I think more than that, I'm also, it's really my first foray into writing about spiritual formation, hopefully the first of many books. And I'm 
really hoping that people get a vision for the way of Jesus as a way of life, not just as a, a religion or a belief system or an ethical moral list of do's and don'ts. It is all of that, but it's more. Um, but actually as a way of life, as a practice. And I'm hoping that people get a fresh vision for what the practices or the spiritual disciplines are. Like just like, oh, that's they're not this legalistic, rule-based, earning God's favor thing that somebody manipulated to tell me it was so I didn't have to do it anymore. They're actually like how you live. Yeah. How you you live the good life, right. and how you order your soul around the life that is truly life, as John said, you know, and I'm and then I'm really hoping that people start to engage at some level with Sabbath and silence and solitude in particular, and some of these other practices of abstinence that I have just found beyond life giving. I mean, they just have like brought so much joy and happiness and peace and healing and love and relational chemistry into my life. And they're, they're not, you know, there's no silver bullets. There's not right. like, okay, now I never have a bad day anymore because I do these four things. Yeah. Life way more complex than that. And I'm way more messed up than that. Um, but man, have they brought life or have they, have they created space for the spirit of God to bring life into my soul? And I, ah, I want that for so many others, a slower, simpler life has radically changed my, not just my life experience, but who I'm becoming. And I want that for as many people as possible. That's amazing. Well, we're so grateful for this, again, that you've written it and for the work that you're doing at Bridgetown and, yeah. and really bringing this idea of centering your life around the rhythms of Jesus. I think it's just so transformational. I hope people pick up the book. Yeah. I hope they read it and I hope they actually start to live it out and it makes a difference in their life. Um, oh, you're so kind. Yeah. Um, in closing, we always ask every guest the same three questions. Are you ready? I'm so ready, <laughs> unless if it's Enneagram number questions. And then I... <laughs> That's a separate podcast. We'll leave that for another time. Um, okay. All right. So it's what's a book that's changed your life? You have to pick one. I know that's really going to be hard for you. Um, what's a habit that's changed your life? And what advice would you give to the younger you? So we'll start with the book. What's a book that's changed your life? Okay, I'll make it really easy. Um, a book that's changed my life is The Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard. Cool. It's not where I would start with him. It's one of his most difficult books. I think it was not until I read it the second time that I barely even understood what he was saying. And it was not until the re I read it the third time that I think I actually started to figure out what he was saying. <laughs> Um, but he has other books that are way more accessible. So if you're new to Willard, start with Life Without Lack. It's his easiest book. It's beautiful. It's not long. It's fantastic. But Spirit of the Disciplines is probably the most influential book I've ever read outside of the Bible. And um, A Habit, Sabbath. Sabbath has radically changed my life. It was not in my life a decade ago. It's deeply ingrained in my life now. And it's the best day of my week, nine times out of ten. I love it. It's changed my life. And advice to my younger self would probably be Sabbath. Yeah. And you know what I mean? Like at a, at a practical level, I wish that if I could go back and talk to my 18-year-old self, I would say one day out of seven, you devote to stopping, resting, delighting, and worshiping. And um, if I could have a longer conversation with my younger self, I would probably talk about metrics for success. Like what makes a good life? When you come to the end of your life, which when you're 18 feels like it won't ever happen, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, what, what, it's the Stephen Covey thing of write your eulogy in advance. Like what will have been a good life and what are you going to define as success? What, what's the vision of life that you're going to run after? And do you want to just receive the one that's handed to you by American culture and, and often by American church culture or, or do, or do you want to maybe pursue another vision more in line with that of Jesus? I, that's the longer conversation I had, but you know what? 
my 18 year old self would not have listened to either of those. <laughs> So, like, sure, old man. So, Thanks sure, a lot. I, I think it would be a waste of my breath. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Nobody's ever said that. That's funny. <laughs> and so true. So true. Well, thank you so much for being here. And I, and I do just want to reiterate, like when Jenny and I came and attended just Bridgetown, we came to a Sunday morning service, and it was. Whatever the church is doing across America, it was the most refreshing thing that we've seen in a long time. And so I just want to champion you and what God's doing through you and through your entire team and just say, uh, keep going and keep keep kind of rocking this boat or whatever you're doing. Not that you're trying to do that, but you're just trying to follow the way of Jesus. And um, it's inspiring us, and I know it's inspiring the people that are listening. So I know this book's going to do the same thing. And so just thank you for coming here today. Thank you for being you. And, uh, you know, stepping past that little bit of that, that, that fear, that risk, whatever that was, seven, eight years ago that God nudged you and you, you said yes. So thank you for doing that. Oh, you're kind. You make it sound more virtuous than it was. And <laughs> I'm so grateful for what you guys do, the gift you are to the church at large, the desperate need for healthy marriages and families and healthy examples of not just pastors, but people outside, you know, in the marketplace. You're such a gift. So love to you guys. Thank you. Maybe I'll see you if I'm ever in Nashville. And in the meantime, enjoy fall. I assume it's beautiful there right now. Yes, it is. Trees changing. They're just changing here. It's gorgeous. Well, tons of love to you guys. Thank you. See you next time. You too. Bye. I'm so glad he said he had to read The Spirit of the Disciplines three times because I'm like, I picked it up five times. It's pretty dense. So just be encouraged. If it took John Mark Comer three times to get through it, you can do it. We can do it. We can do this together. If though, if you are looking for an accessible entry-level guide to the spiritual disciplines, start with The Life You've Always Wanted by John Ortberg. It is incredible. It's very easy. It's coffee with sugar and cream. I mean, it is just delightful. Super easy read. That book is dense, but I'm dense (laughs) when it comes to reading that kind of stuff. So... I leave it to you and the Holy Spirit to do the interpretation. But seriously, guys, we hope that this blessed you today. Um, What God is doing in John Mark and in their church really has been a gift for our family. And if you haven't heard of Bridgetown or what God's doing there, please look them up, follow them, and dive in to the resources they are making available for you and your family so that you can start practicing the way of Jesus. Yep, we will link to all of that in the show notes so you can check out Bridgetown, Don Mark, you can check out his books and Practicing the Way. Guys, thank you so much for being here with us week in, week out. We love doing this with you. We hope you are growing and learning just as we are. And that's a wrap for today's episode. So we're going to close it out like we do every single time. Remember, you only get one life. Live Live it well. well.